You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 547, Brooklyn Beckham and the Big Wheel of Cheese, the lost link between booze, drugs and rock and roll, and re-evaluating Mary Whitehouse. That's all coming up after War and Story of the Blues.
Early success from Pete Wiley's topsy-turvy musical career path. Number three in the UK in 1982. Wah! And the story of the blues. I do like that. From the off, I just find myself singing along. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, just a, I find it a very cheering tune, Terence, from that sort yes. of 80s indie kind of vibe. Welcome to this audio experience mm. from the Parish Council. It's episode 547. I'm Terence Stackham. And, of course, it's the question everybody's asking. Is she going to buy Chelsea Football Club? Let's find <laughs> out. It's Juliet Harris. I mean, I'm not willing to pay very much. And I sense that I won't I won't meet Roman's uh, expectations on this. By the way, I always slightly in, I'm excited and in terror every week at what question you're going to ask me. So <laughs> I spend the podcast, I must admit. It could have been a lot worse. So, it could have been. Uh, it could have been. But yes, I will not be purchasing your Chelsea, as I'm contractually uh... obliged to call them. I'm afraid because I think that, you know, I would have installed you as man manager Terence and we'd have won a lot together I think but uh maybe if I find something down the back of the sofa I'll let you know in the we meantime we could set up a consortium couldn't we oh yes oh and and you know we can I, I love word. it I love the idea of us arriving on the pitch in a helicopter being <laughs> greeted by greeted by waving children that would be perfect in the meantime hello everyone oh um as an issue I was reading an article in your the guardian this week mm, yes. um the headline of which read Listening to podcasts on headphones increases <laughs> perceived intimacy with hosts' research oh, finds. Nice. So if you're listening on headphones, hello, come yeah. on in. Come <laughs> yeah. in. Yeah, hello, hello, people. It's very nice to have yes. this. It's actually, it said, uh, here's a quote, experiments found a voice coming from inside our heads can be mm. twice as persuasive as one coming from a speaker. People develop parasocial intimacy with podcast hosts well, maybe, maybe we need to check the, the, the parasocial council maybe we need to change that <laughs> yes. the, the name also if that really is true then all i need everybody to do is to write out a check for 25 pounds <laughs> and post it to po box and then we can all buy chelsea and that would be great <laughs> I have some sympathy for some of the sons and daughters mm -hmm. of hugely famous people. I yeah. mean, yes, there are huge advantages, mostly with connections and money. And for some that, you know, that can mean an easy path through to fame and fortune for that son or daughter, quite often beyond their natural talent uh, or lack of. But there are others that seem to become lost in the slipway of their parents' success. Uh, step forward, please. Brooklyn Beckham, who has at his young age tried careers as a model and mm. photographer and is now trying to establish himself as a presenter of a cookery show, the splendidly named Cooking with Brooklyn. I mean, that is great, isn't it? What a, what a fantastic name. It's an eight episode series made with Vogue and launched on Facebook's Watch Together on Messenger service. This week, we've been watching young Brooklyn cook pasta for his fiancée, Nicole, in Jules, the tasteful surrounds of the Violet Cooking School in Westwood, Los Angeles. I wondered where that was, actually. I, I, it was just some random kitchen. And I thought, well, they look, they've got a lot of stuff there. It looks quite good. So I watched this with a, a great deal of cynicism. I can't lie to hmm. you, Terence. I really wasn't okay. looking forward to this. Um 
And there are many, I mean, there are many things you can mock about this because there are always things you can yeah. mock about everything. This featured him cooking some pasta that involved a wheel of cheese that weighed between 80 and 90 pounds. Um, so we had to watch Brooklyn. You see, I found it, I found parts of it interesting because I'd never seen anybody opening a wheel of cheese before. It wasn't yeah. something I'd experienced. So he t- put all the sort of spikes around the side of it that appeared to be, he was visibly sweating by the end of, of it. Course, it was quite hard work. Um, so, that, so they opened up the wheel of cheese, which I'd, I'd never seen. So actually, I found somebody opening a wheel of cheese quite therapeutic, actually. Mm. I quite enjoyed watching that bit. Um, they then seemed to involve scraping some of the cheese out of the wheel of cheese to cook with the pasta. And then there was a moment which really made me laugh. We went, oh, we're going to use a bit more of the leftover cheese. And it's like, mate, that is £85 worth <laughs> of cheese. It wasn't clear what happened to the rest no. of the cheese. It was, it was, so in some senses, it was everything wasteful about the Western world that, that is, is, is so vexing. Also, he did he, he come up with little bits of little sort of bomb mows and pieces of advice is it true that you're not meant to clean pasta making machines ever because that was news to me me too yeah yes no it made a sort of sense so i've heard people say that about walks you should never clean a walk exactly i mean i do i do worry that he's given a lot of impressionable young Mm. people listeria but or something similar advice i expected to hate this all the way through and to find it really smug actually i found him a reasonably likable screen Mm. presence i was quite surprised i thought he seemed like a nice guy he was quite um the filming was occasionally a bit strange in that I think they were trying to present it as if we just happened to be in the cook the kitchen with mm. Brooklyn rather than it being a kind of a, oh, yeah, you do this and then you do that. Although there was a bit of that. But it meant they filmed him from the side sometimes. And I felt like saying he's looking to the wrong camera, like all the time, mm. the first five minutes. Um, I thought it was OK. His girlfriend seemed very sweet. He was quite... Um, I, you know, it, the usual thing with all these cooking programs, it's not unique to, to him, in that they give you just enough information, but they don't give you all of the information about how to cook it because they want you to go and buy. I presume there's going to be a book to tie in with this because mm. there's always a book to tie in with TV cooking things. Um why is he doing this? Because he's who he is. Does he have any expertise? Probably not. No. Um, no more expertise than anybody that cooks in their kitchen. Having said that, we had previously talked about his photograph, his his photographs and his attempts to do that career and how some of them were out of focus. And it was very obvious with that that he'd only got there because of the name and the connections mm. that his family had. With this, yes, he's there because of that. But I bought this a bit more than I bought the photography just because I thought he was a reasonably likable screen presence it's vexing that it's him that does this that than perhaps other people that are unknown that are more deserving or have more expertise having said that for what it was which was 12 minutes that i watched on on youtube on my phone in bed it passed the time reasonably well i found it less annoying than i am georgina last week <laughs> and um I, I thought it was all right i thought he was okay i mean be interesting to see how it goes over time but I thought he was quite natural on camera he was quite natural talking to the person behind him about you know did you hear that and the sweating and things I thought this was all right I thought it was a reasonably good fist of it I fully agree. I mean, Brooklyn's experience in the kitchen seems limited. He said he only started cooking during quarantine. But he was honest about that. He, he was very honest. Really, he yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I thought he did very well in creating pasta from scratch. The, the tagliatelle seemed quite neat. What one strange aspect of this show was that Vogue or the director 
kept several bloopers in, making me wonder if they were truly on Brooklyn's side in this. Did they want to make him look a bit daft? Oh, that's um, interesting. But, yeah, you know, but, but you think about his determined action in breaking the giant um, cheese wheel in half. <laughs> um, you know, they 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 made a it was made a feature of it that he really struggled and it took him half an hour and he was sort of looking off camera and saying, "Is this okay?" You know, it, I, it just, I found that quite endearing. Though. I found it endearing, but I wondered, you know, at the same time, well, it just seemed that I wondered why the directors left all that bit in. But he but presented it, 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 his it, it, past. More natural, I suppose. I think it it made him seem a bit more just like a sort of normal person that was oh, cooking. I warmed to him very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he presented his pasta on the side of broccoli, and I mean, how I hate broccoli i really do it's it's like eating miniature trees i don't yeah, know not why. a fan not oh, a fan no, here no. but anyway he presented this to his girlfriend uh nicola peltz who yes, said she nicola. loved it but hmm. ate about two mouthfuls yes i know when it when he sort of d- d- demonstrated the plates proudly it's like she hasn't yeah, maybe she's one of the people that don't eat i don't know but anyway mm. I, she she was i mean she's so more enthusiasm towards the cake although the revelation that he hated cake i found very startling That's interesting like, yeah well she she did the same. He, great expectations of her approval. Brooklyn um, made, as you say, this pecan pie, which Nicholas sort of waved her fork at and again saying how wonderful it was. But no, yeah. Brooklyn, he's like a little puppy um, wanting to be loved. And I really warmed to him. Yeah, I did. I hope his relationship turns out well. I noticed that in this, as you say, 12 minute show, he referred to Nicola as his fiance five times. He kept saying, mm-hmm. I'm just going to see with my, take this through to my fiance. And yeah. um, I hope my fiance likes this as if saying it was like re- reinforcing yeah. it. Yes, you know? I, I wish I wish him well. I really do. I, I hope that, it, that, that things work out to him. Yes, that's an interesting. I didn't spot that. But that is very mm. interesting. But no, he seemed. And actually, for yes, he's had all the opportunities he's had because of his parentage. But when he was talking about his parents and his siblings, he seemed fairly ordinary. Yes, indeed. Fairly ordinary guy. Mm. I I liked the reference to David Beckham's wine cellar and the fact that David Beckham has wheels of cheese in his wine cellar. It was, but yes, I do hope that they did something with that cheese that that was, you know, that befitted eighty pounds worth of cheese rather than. By pounds, I mean weight. It is really huge. It's worth watching it just for the size of the cheese. And who who knew that's how you get into a wheel of cheese? I yeah. the last time I saw a wheel of cheese on TV, it was being used to crush Martin McCutcheon's character in Midsummer Murders. So it's not always like a bit of wheel of cheese <laughs> content. So so no, thank you, Brooklyn, for your wheel of cheese. I enjoyed it very much. And Brooklyn Beckham, he turns, he, he turned 23 this week and he, he came, comes across, as we say, eager, a little bit directionless, but he seems a genuine, pleasant chap. And I hope he makes young something of. Yeah, absolutely. Quite young for 23, I very think. Very young, 23. Old, yeah. I hope you make something of it. Cooking hmm. with Brooklyn. Uh, hmm. It's on Watch Together on Messenger and um, it's on YouTube as well if you if you want to watch it. Um, obviously, Vogue loved putting that rhyming title together, Cooking mm-hmm. with Brooklyn. Oh, here we and, go. I thought of a few similar ideas for them. Yes. So I thought if if they wanted to do um, mathematics for <laughs> kindergarten um, children, yes. learn to count with Mason Mount. Hey, I'd love that. That would be great. What about if they could have the Count Von Counts or the Counts <laughs> as well? That would be extremely good. Making spaghetti with violinist Nicola Benedetti. What, who is listening to this that that we can make these happen? Because this pitch is wild. Shelling peas with David Louise. 
Hey, I love these. Right. <laughs> um, one, one for sort of a business uh, sort of channel, yeah. importing goods with Tiger Woods. Oh, they, you're on to something with all of these. Uh, what, this, this is almost like uh, youth hustling with Chris Eubank. <laughs> Inception rhymes. I've got fun, one final one in the kitchen. Um, one for Vogue to take up. Eating toast with Mickey Most and Colin Jost and Emily Post and Neil Oliver from Coast. Hey, wow, you'd never get the budget for that. Um, that is, that is, I, 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 unfortunately, my brain does not, my brain is not, uh, it does not, be, although maybe we could have uh, eating ham with Brooklyn Beckham, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, this is, this is great. I, I look forward to more of these in the future. You could have a whole channel of this, couldn't you? <laughs> Doing things with the stars. Coming up next, hard partying musicians. Are their days numbered? That's right after this terrific track by the Magic Numbers. Don't let the sun 
be the one to change you, baby. I wanna learn how to lie if I'm to know, cause I wanna go. joy of seeing the magic numbers with my friend Dave recently oh, and I say the joy lovely. I um, I did actually cry slightly during this song but it was happy crying I promise but um, we saw them at the Fat Tuesday weekend in Hastings Hastings always it's been described as a fishing as, as a drinking town with a fishing problem and that was very much in evidence again during Fat Tuesday weekend it's the biggest Mardi Gras festival I think in Britain now it, it goes from Thursday to Tuesday I think or Friday to Tuesday it goes for five days I think so Friday to Tuesday and involves various festivities and climaxes with the Fat Tuesday tour on on Tuesday night making a taking advantage of the fact there are lots of pubs near each other in Hastings Old Town and the 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 Tuesday evening 24 bands play in pubs over the space of an evening and they all play in three different pubs each so basically there is just a constant churn of so you have to work out if you're going to follow a band around pubs if you're just going to pick a pub to me I would recommend a popping down there's also an acoustic version on the sunday the acoustic tour which is 60 bands that play wow. over, over all day and it is just such a joy and so we had the the pleasure of seeing uh michelle stoddart from the um magic numbers do a live completely unplugged because it's meant to be unplugged to the the acoustic tour on the saturday afternoon and then everyone turns up with portable amps and you think mm, this isn't that unplugged is it well michelle genuinely was unplugged and played without a mic and an acoustic guitar and drew people into the cafe that we were playing that she was playing at and we were all sort of sat near her and it was a lovely weekend and, it climbed, and, and that bit climaxed with us going to see the magic numbers in a venue called the brass in hastings it was very small there were annoying people talking who eventually oh. were told to shut up in a forcible way by the woman next to us who then herself got a standing ovation and uh but um it was su- such a pleasure to see them still a fantastic band their songs will last forever i think they will really stand the test of time there was it was a joy to see them play um that was forever lost by the uh magic numbers it's reminded me i rather enjoyed uh michelle stoddart's two solo oh. albums in recent years it's got a sort yeah. of country tinge to them yes and there's a third on the way apparently ah, excellent. So it, it was largely completed and then lockdown happened so so I think it's uh, it's being finished, but that should be that should be along soon. One of the great disappointments of the so-called punk revolution in music in 1976-77 was the, the the double standards, even hypocrisy, mm-hmm. I guess, of the musicians and roaders and hangers-on. There was this great call for change. Much fun was had at the expense of the grandiose lifestyles yeah. of the prog rock bands. But no sooner did a sizable number of the punk bands make a, some money, it was going on the same drugs, booze and appalling yes. treatment of women um, that had been going on only a few years before with the prog rockers. And nothing has changed much from the 60s to the present day, except that apparently 
partly due to the pandemic, more and more musicians and crew members are touring drug and alcohol free. Mm. Live music touring professionals have set up a number of support networks that specialise in mental health and addiction issues, saying there's a demand for musicians and crew to be healthy and the narrative needs to change, they say. Oh, Mm. Jules, surely... This is no good. You don't want your musicians to be sober. You want them to be rocking out and throwing televisions out of hotel suites, (laughs) surely. I mean, I can't say I've ever done this myself, although I did once steal two packets of Watsits off another band's rider out of spite because they were annoying me. But anyway, I don't suppose that's really in the same league, is it? What is so interesting about (laughs) what is so interesting about this? So so debauched behaviour can be a lot of fun. And and, you know, that that I went to see a performer um, on a Thursday evening in Brighton at the Hope and Ruin called Bob Log the Third, who is a one man band who dresses as a spaceman. You never see him. He has a sort of black trout helmet on and he sings from his own mic that is attached to him and he has a telephone thing that he sings through like an old-fashioned telephone handle and we saw him on Thursday evening and he did the the maddest show I think I've ever seen it climaxed in him crowd surfing in a dinghy across the heads of the crowds while still playing guitar and singing he did various things and he had a rock and roll moment what were various rock and roll moments in which he introduced us to his manager who was an inflatable duck like a small sort of paddling boat for kids to sit in an inflatable duck <laughs> called dee doodle and um he opened a bottle of bucks fizz which he then dubbed ducks fizz because he poured this bucks fizz into dee doodle and doodle was then passed around the crowd and various people attempted to drink bucks fizz <laughs> from from a yes with the results one would very much expect having said yeah. that Nobody was made to drink the Ducks Fizz if they didn't want to. And it was just a lot of fun. And people bought drinks for Bob. Bob was quite insistent people buy him drinks. So he drank tequila and things whilst on stage. And it was really fun. I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but it was just a complete joy. Having said that, the interesting thing about, oh, do we want our our musicians, Mm. you know, we want them to be trashed all the time, blah, blah, blah. I'd quite like them to be alive, really. And I and I think when you, you think about sort of the, the, the lifestyles of the past, we hear, it seems particularly at the moment where everything is so fragile, we often hear about musicians that have literally drunk or drugged themselves to death and how sort of missed they are. And you, you, you sort of feel like saying, you know, maybe the rock and roll lifestyle and all the mythology around that masks the fact that there are an awful lot of really unwell really unhappy people doing that sort of thing who made themselves miserable yes they might have been rich in some cases but they made themselves very miserable and ended up in many cases i think getting trapped in this sort of mythology and this sort of treadmill that that's what you have to do in order to be an authentic musician an authentic rock star and actually I think it's quite a healthy thing if we if if musicians no one's you know it's not the fact oh nobody no musician must drink anymore but I think if people are being given support if they're unwell I think that's a really positive thing actually because it means they can keep they can keep sort of performing and keep keep delighting us with their music I saw um this article in the garden a very interesting mm-hmm. long article that I would recommend that people read on this if they want to by Hannah Mae Kilroy and she's talking about Randy Blythe which sounds like a comic name in itself mm-hmm. but anyway frontman of Lamb of God the US metal band I'm not sure I go it doesn't sound like my thing but anyway talking about the first time he performed live sober and he said that he was it was October 2010 and they were opening for Metallica in Brisbane in Australia so this is 
is all the stage is set, isn't it? And he said, I was thrown into the lion's den on stage in front of 14,000 people weeping uncontrollably. Thank God I had long hair so it covered my face. I got sober on tour, surrounded by free drugs and alcohol. I felt if I could do it out there, I'd be able to maintain it anyway, which is actually quite inspiring. There are various people sort of... um saying um mike kerr of, of royal blood saying i had an entrenched belief that being hung over or intoxicated was intoxicated was great for creativity but once sober he wrote the rock duo's third album typhoons an expansion of the band sound that continued their streak of uk number one albums people could hear i was using my whole brain he said and various people have gone on to say that actually they feel that that um the sort of creative switches have been unlocked in their brains in terms of, of, of being sober and, and yeah which is really interesting so I I mean obviously we can joke and say oh you know no one wants really dull people on stage that aren't interesting I'm delighted that I got to see Bob Log um, pouring <laughs> Buck's Fizz into an inflatable duck and knocking back tequila on stage and genuinely being a lot of fun having said that you know, I also would hate the idea that Bob Locke did that all the time and that he passed on in four years. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I would hate the idea of him being really unhappy. And I think that, that you know, there were probably an awful lot of really unhappy people that didn't need to be that unhappy because of the and particularly here in Britain. We as a country have a very strange and often quite damaged relationship with alcohol, I think. And I, I, I like the idea that we are thinking more carefully about that. And maybe one mm-hmm. of the the I don't want to say upsides because it's been so terrible but maybe it was something we can take away from the this pandemic and these COVID times is the idea that we are all looking after our own and each other's health more that we're all you know that those of us that work in offices are no longer pulling ourselves in when we have honking colds because you know what's the point in spreading it around to everyone yeah, else that's yeah, really and I, I used to be one of the worst offenders for that and it's completely changed my view so maybe you know and there is you know a cynical aspect to this that the money men in suits obviously want you to make as much money as possible for them so maybe it suits them now <laughs> for you to be sober so that you can actually turn up mm. to your gig and people want to see you again having said that the fact that people are now better supported in doing these things, I think is a good thing. And and I think it is more more than possible to be able to produce excellent music without being completely trashed. So I, I welcome it, I think. When I was looking into this, I, I looked up an interview with Johnny Marr from last year. Oh, yeah. And he said in this interview um, a few months ago that he's been sober for about 15 years and says these days he feels much better for it and has tons more energy um one thing i learned at this week about johnny marr that i didn't know is that uh, as a result of this he goes long distance running it's his hobby um i I I might have known that but Mm. no he's he's, for someone for someone of the age that he is he looks in fantastic things so so maybe he's a great advert for for leading a healthier lifestyle and and still releasing really good records that are popular and sell so so you know let's all be more like johnny marr on the other hand i remember joe strummer completing a couple of marathons when he was out of his head on just about every substance ever invented (laughs) so uh, in in my time i've seen artists go on stage completely obliterated with drugs and alcohol and give the performance of their lives but then we can contrast uh, and and you you kind of went slightly this way with those awful remember those awful videos of amy winehouse in her last couple of years where her on stage performances were shambolic and terribly sad to witness weren't they 
it's it's all too easy to come across as a sort of goody goody calling for all musicians, indeed anyone in the arts, to be sober and clean living. But I certainly prefer it. I haven't touched alcohol or drugs for mm. like well, way over. 40 years more maybe so um i don't condemn musicians who reach out for stimulants stimulants but no. um, it's a very short short list though that have a happy journey isn't it yes. to a long trouble free life yeah absolutely and and i hate the idea that that musicians end up tra- some musicians end up trapped into that because they feel yeah. it's what they should do that it's kind of part of the mythology and part of the world so i i yes i hope that that healthier attitudes come out of this time all round in terms of of how we think about our own health and and what we expect from people as well i think Next up, Mary Whitehouse, the subject of two documentaries this month, Po-Faced Puritan or Was She Ahead of Her Time? That's right after the new single from Blossoms. She said life gets no better and no worse. Where we came from, they tell you it's a curse. Hiding places, lonely as she does. The smiling Blossoms was uh, was when uh, or oh, about six months ago when they undertook some gigs with Rick Astley. Yes. When when they performed talking about Johnny Marr, but they performed a yes. set of Smiths covers, didn't they? They they have a new album ne- out next month, and this is the title track from it: Blossoms and Ribbon Around the Bomb. 
Yes, I like Blossoms, and I I regret not seeing those shows actually. Yes. But everybody wanted to see those shows. It was very difficult to get tickets. But no, I I I do like Blossoms actually, and I like them even even more for doing that, doing the, the Rick Astley and the Smith stuff, and mm. I and that made me listen to their stuff more. And you know, I think they're good. They're they're a good they're a good. I still consider them to be a youngish band, and I, I think they're a good mm. a good band. I've heard a few tracks from the new album. It's very pop oriented mm. and it's very accessible. It's really, oh, right. really good sort of me- me- melodic songs. Yeah. About um, a million years ago in the early 1980s, I was a DJ, a presenter on local radio. And I remember it was just coming up to Christmas. And on my show, we did a sort of special where I interviewed famous people, celebrities on how they were spending Christmas. And one of my interviewees was... Mary Whitehouse. Wow! Wow! And uh, about, such a life, Terence. What a <laughs> the rich the and famous. Wow! About the only thing I remember. This is like forty years ago. The only thing I remember was that I only actually asked two questions, and she went <laughs> on for about half an hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I would do it differently now today, but I didn't have the heart, or maybe even the confidence, to interrupt her. Yeah, it was a it was a Mary Whitehouse monologue. Um, Opinion was widely divided in the 60s and 70s, her decades of most influence. Um, Some perhaps uh, perhaps older traditional people saw her as the saviour of good old fashioned values, while um, the more, shall we say, right on younger generation thought she was a killjoy. Her name became a synonym for censorship and the reigning in of artistic freedom. And it's the latter view which has held, really. But is it possible now to reappraise, reevaluate Mary Whitehouse? Did she have a fair point in trying to protect children from violent material on television? Her, her, her views on gay issues were as old fashioned mm-hmm. as her 1930s hairstyle and terrifying spectacles. <laughs> um, yet Sabina Ahmed, presenting a programme for BBC Radio 4 this very weekend, says she had access to Mrs Whitehouse's diaries and found, and I quote, a witty woman who loved fashion, enjoyed a lively argument and liked the company of young people. So Mary Whitehouse Jules, a campaigner ahead of her time. So, so I have to say that Samira Ahmed could probably persuade me of anything. I have so much time for her as a as a writer and a broadcaster. I think she's phenomenally talented and wise. So I was really interested because because I was sort of I only ever knew Mary Whitehouse. To me, she felt like this just you know irrelevant old Harridan really. That's that's kind of and I knew obviously of her from the title of the TV show, the Mary Whitehouse experience, and you know how how sort of mocked she was generally. Mm-hmm. This uh piece that um interview with Samir Ahmed in the Guardian with Jim Waterson, their media editor, it's really interesting. I'm definitely gonna give give this Radio 4 documentary that she's made a listen because it sounds really interesting. And she's she's making the point there's this lovely she did an interview with the Radio Times and there's this lovely phrase in which she says her accounts of a phone call in which she harangued David Attenborough, then controller of BBC Two, over showing a sexually explicit film convinced me the experience may well have made him return to wildlife presenting, feeling safer in the jungle. Perhaps we owe her a debt of gratitude, says says Samir Ahmed. It's an interesting one in that maybe, she, maybe I think that the answer is, is to most questions is rarely black or white. There's always shades of grey. There are some things she did. I mean, as, as Samir Rama says in this in this uh, thing, um, she couldn't make excuses for Mary Whitehouse's religious beliefs that homosexuality was sinful. Mm-hmm. Now, I, now everybody has the, the right to 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 uh, 
observe religion and I completely agree with that but also I you know I have a real real issue with people that are homophobic I just I I find that really really difficult so so that aspect of her legacy I'm happy to stay in the past forever but but um Armin makes the point that she um that a lot of the online age checks for adult material, a lot of her lobbying created laws that banned the making of child pornography, indecent displays of magazines and news agents, forced the vetting of home videos. She says the current online harms bill is trying to to address dangers she warned of 40 years ago. Now there are certain things. There are certain. I suppose you could argue that maybe there is a difference between taste and decency. Just because you don't like something doesn't necessarily mean that it is morally wrong. And of course, in our increasingly shouty online debate age, it is difficult to draw that line between the two. And I might have struggled to do so in the past and I'll probably struggle to do so again. But the idea of sort of basic decency, the idea that there are some things that are morally abhorrent there are some things that that you know that that children shouldn't be involved in there are some things that that you know they need to be protected from harm that other people are doing to them in that respect and so so aspects of things makes you wonder if they would have happened had it not been for her and she's often like I said portrayed as this sort of harridan she wouldn't have been portrayed but as in that way she was a man I would say that right now and I think a lot of that sort of criticism of her you know, is is around her image and and around her gender. I think uh, there are certain things of hers that I don't agree with. Having said that, on on issues like child safety, the internet is nothing new. It's showing the same the same problems that we always that we that we've always experienced. So actually, there are things that she did that have stood the test of time. We could always argue about, you know, that's the censorship argument, isn't it? Why are you censoring something? Is it because you don't like something or is it because, you know, there is something about it that that we shouldn't be putting up with? So, so you know, I, I'm looking forward to hearing this because I think there is space here to to, to look at Mary Whitehouse in, in what Samir Ahmed describes as a, a more nuanced way. I think there was a lot of misogyny and bad manners directed at Mary Whitehouse during her campaigning years. But broadly, I have to say, I disagree, I think, with Sabina Ahmed and other commentators like the media editor of your, of your The Guardian, um, Jim Watterson, Watterson um, who believe her contribution to public life is, is due for re-evaluation. Yes, the protection of children is laudable and not many would argue against that. But... Here was a person with some other pompous acolytes believing that her view and only her view was the acceptable one Mm. in terms of deciding what we can watch, read and listen to. And that's a very dangerous situation. I want to make my own decisions in life as much as that is possible in a free society. And I also don't want to impose my values on other people. Yes, fair enough. Well, but it's but but that's that's the point I'm making. You know, there mm. is a sliding scale between taste and decency. I think mm. there is a sliding scale between what you like and what you don't, and things that that vulnerable people need protecting from. And this again goes back to the conversation we had about anti-vaxxers and all that, all that. You know, I'll mm. we'll say Al. I always refer to anybody that we've talked about on the podcast as our friend. So our friend Joe Rogan and his podcast. Oh lord, yes. all that, all that sort of stuff. So so it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. Well, well, it's. I sense we might not agree on this, but I'm certainly going to listen to the program because I think it sounds very interesting. Sure. Thanks for attending this week, particularly if you've been listening on headphones. Yes, absolutely. Hello from inside your head. If you're listening to exactly. headphones, thanks for being with us. You know, like cooking with Brooklyn. Yeah. I was thinking, if you were sponsored by Paddy Power, 
have a bet with Juliet. Hey, nice indeed. I uh, what can I say? Wilhelmina Hill is what I would call my you bookmakers. Could, you I think. could you could be you could do one of those like Matt Baker, Juliet Bradbury style shows in the countryside. Yes. Um, exploring the Vale of Pusey with Juliet Lucy. <laughs> very good yeah or a, 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 a candid camera show in the style of jeremy jeremy beadle april fools with super jewels oh nice I, oh, of course the, the, you're missing the ultimate which is juliet harris goes to paris that is, <laughs> that is, yeah, that is surely the, the yes. trap log that, that that needs to maybe we could just adapt a version of mrs harris goes to paris and just put me in it instead i don't know it, I, I will not be doing any such endeavors well, I mean, i've got teach. one final one for you because if you're ever not available for your radio show, I have yeah. the perfect substitute. Smooth sailing with Michael Palin. Oh, wow. You see, oh, can someone make this happen? Because he'd be much better at it than me. He'd be brilliant. I'd but, be completely up for that. But you'll be needing no substitute this weekend for your smooth sailing radio show. Uh, this person in this circumstance is of course you city yes I, I will be doing some sailing this week um from 7 to 9 p.m on my mixer channel mixlr.com forward slash juliet hyphen harris uh the virtual yacht is back in session uh, we'll be uh, cruising on the smooth yet uplifting waters of yacht rock classic pop mor aor easy listening anything that is generally quite nice to listen to we we tend to pop along so do do pop along if you can if you miss old shows and you want to catch up there's a show reel button on my mixer page plugging out with my pals from my teenage years hmm. yes i was sorry to hear of the passing of nikki tesco this week um i was always been quite a fan of the members actually i i, I enjoy the music i didn't realize your connection with them until fairly recently actually mm. so this isn't just me sucking up i promise i do like <laughs> them but um no i and i this song has always felt well it's felt increasingly relevant over over recent years and indeed recent weeks and days given the sort of economic warfare that we're now being told about um so i in tribute to nikki tesco and just because it's a song that i i really it's one of those songs which i love but i really wish it didn't keep being relevant yet somehow it still is relevant these are the members and this is offshore banking business
listening to a Parish Council production. 